This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We're going to talk visual art now and we're going to talk an exhibition which was timed uh, to coincide with International Women's Day, which was yesterday. Uh, And it's an exhibition called The Women's Show, which is on at Vivian Anderson Gallery in St Kilda Road. Joining us to talk to us about the exhibition, we have Amy Boyd, the gallery manager, and one of the participating artists, Marie Clark. Welcome to Triple R, the both of you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So... Let's start with you, Amy. Tell us a little bit more about the gallery and the exhibition itself, which is an exhibition of um, uh, emerging and established Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Absolutely it is. Um, Well, Vivian Anderson Gallery uh, specialise in Indigenous art, the representation of Australian Indigenous artists. Um, And the Women's Show is an exhibition that we've been holding now since 2001. It's our annual exhibition that is held to coincide with International Women's Day. And it's really an exhibition that celebrates um, the ongoing... um, ..sort of the diversity of Australian Indigenous women. Um, It celebrates both established and emerging artists um, at the top of their game and their enduring commitment to making art um, that that sort of inspires. And um, Mm. we've got artists in the exhibition that are really from across Australia. So we've got artists uh, from Queensland, um, the Torres Straits, uh, Kimberley region, Central Australia and um, tri-state border area and then artists from Tasmania and Melbourne, including Marie Clark, who's with us today. And, Marie, you're from uh, north-east Victoria. Yeah. yeah. How, tell us a little bit about your practice and, and how long you've been working as an artist. Oh, well, um, I came to Melbourne in 1988 to paint the first green and gold tram and basically went back to Muldura, packed up my little flat and moved here and been working as a practising artist ever since. Yeah. And uh, including jewellery as well Mm -hmm. as painting? Yep. Um, So what I do is do a lot of research in museum collections and recreate objects and items that we don't have in, in collections Um, particularly here in in Australia. So I travel around the world researching material cultural items. And then, like at the moment, I'm I'm in the middle of making five 50-metre river reed necklaces for a big show in Canberra, the um, National Indigenous Art Triennial called Defying Empire. And, um, And then I've just recently finished a baby possum skin cloak for the women's show at Vivian Anderson Gallery... Oh, gosh, what else do I do, Amy? Um, well, you also, I, I think, know. as well as um, those very traditional um, cultures, which you, you know, in the traditional material culture that you've been very interested in looking at, you also tell your story through new media, um, oh, photography, yeah. installation work, um, and indeed creating, am I allowed to say, I think holographic so. works for yes. the National Gallery of Australia's Triennial, which is opening in May. Yeah. So, so I think it's a really... Um, Marie's practice is incredibly diverse, but uh, sort of grounded in the traditions and grounded in the history of of your people, but finding, you know, both traditional materials and and new technologies as a way of kind of expressing those different stories. Yeah, so with the lenticular prints, for instance, that um, tells the story of when my family and I used to live down behind the mission in Bell Reynold pre-1967 and we used to live in a tent. My bed was a suitcase. So I've done a series of three absolutely beautiful um, lenticular prints 
as a commission for Monoshuni. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the work that's in the current exhibition, the, the possum skin piece, mm-hmm. which is possum skin and paint then painted upon as yep. well. Talk to yep. us a little bit about that work and um, what it's, I guess, its meaning to you personally. Well, possum skin cloaks were, were given um, to to Aboriginal people like as babies and it was added to until, you know, you were an adult. So it was almost like your autobiography. So Something the that markings grew with on you it, over time. Yeah, yeah were um, dictated who you were, your connection to country, culture, place. And the one that um, is in Vivian's, um, in the women's show, is a map of Bunurong country and the little circles on, on the, the cloak represent either water but also scales on a snake, which is my father's country, Muddy Muddy Country, and the diamonds represent shields or mountains and that sort of thing. Yeah, mm. and it's painted with ochre. Mm-hmm. And, Amy, tell us about some of the other artists who are... Uh, represented in the exhibition. Yeah, absolutely. We've got... Uh, well, the exhibition um, is over 40 works by more than 20 extraordinary women artists. Um, and in it, it's, it's basically an exhibition of all media. Um, so you've got um, works on canvas. You've got bark paintings from Arnhem Land. Um, we've got a, a lot of sculptural work. So there's um, fibre work. There's kelp work made from traditional bull kelp, which is by Vicky West, who's a Tasmanian artist who uses bull kelp as a metaphor for the survival of her people, produces work out of that. Um, And then, you know, traditional pandanus works from from Arnhem Land as well. There's also, I think, the, the wonderful thing about this exhibition is that it celebrates women working in very traditional art forms, such as, you know, fibre work, um, possum skin cloaks, but also innovative work as well. And so, for example, we have um, an artist from Queensland who makes traditional fire carriers or fire sticks, um, bagu, but she's making them now out of ceramic work. Or we have artists, very senior artists from Munkaja in Fitzroy Crossing in the Kimberley region, who are women who are in their 80s who last year started to paint on perspex. And so they have this incredibly, you know, luscious, gorgeous kind of... um, high gloss saturated color um but again the sort of the freedom and, and all of these artists are really telling their individual stories of themselves of their place of their connection to country of their history um but telling it in a medium that suits them so for example the bark paintings of arnhem land which is traditionally where that material was from or the canvas works of, of the central desert which essentially sort of derived from sand painting and is now you know put down on on canvas so it's it's one of those wonderful exhibitions that we really love putting together every year because you do get to really showcase um you know an incredible group of women and and celebrate their their continued commitment um to their cultures and their continued contribution to to australian and international visual arts and culture and marie i'm wondering if one of for me one of the things that i'm taking away from this is the that the exhibition is not only reminding uh, audiences and viewers of uh, a living culture and a, a living artistic practice, but also the diversity of Aboriginal cultures and, and artistic practices as well. I know earlier in your career you uh, fought to, to remind people that uh, uh, Aboriginal art is not just the desert uh, yes. and remote artists, that Absolutely. Aboriginal art is is living and urban uh, and, and in southeast Victoria as well as the centre. So yeah. how important is it for an exhibition like this to, to remind people about the diversity of a, a, a rich, living Aboriginal culture? Oh, I think it's very important and I think it's great to have 
you know, the women's show where, you know, Amy mentioned where all of these artworks are from. And, you know, for the last 30 years I've been pushing to... Um, say that Victorian Aboriginal art is just as valid as, you know, Central Desert Top End, anywhere I've been to art shows where people have come up to our South East Australian stand asking where the Aboriginal art is and they're looking for Central Desert or Top End and we're saying you're looking at it. This yeah. is South East Australian Aboriginal art. So to see Victorian and Tasmania artists exhibiting with all of the other artists is is just fantastic and like Amy said with the the little fire sticks that are now made in ceramic like people might not recognize that as being Aboriginal art but it is and you know it's not traditionally like that form of of clay from that area but yeah no got to push the boundaries of Victoria. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it seems to be in a conversation that I've had quite a few times whereby people will, will have to say, no, what you're looking at, as you've just said, is, mm. is Aboriginal art made yeah. here? It, it's yeah. because perhaps tourists or perhaps the art market mm. to a degree has encouraged people to, to think of one style of Aboriginal art such as uh, the the dot paintings mm. and, and desert art and so forth. So there's still clearly uh, galleries have a a, a a bit of an uphill struggle as well, I would imagine. Well, I think um, I mean it's interesting. I do think that we are people are starting to realise that there is more to to um, indigenous art than you know the traditional dot painting, for example. Um, but it's also interesting to see, I think, in the context of, of something like the women's show and 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 women's work generally, the way that much women's work is starting to be recognised in that. I think there is a sort of a sense that when Indigenous art was first recognised as a fine art movement, it was, you know, that work from Papania Tulo, the, the, the central desert, those dot paintings. Um, and, and, and I think that was when people first started really recognising Australian Indigenous art and perhaps that's where the idea that that's what Indigenous art looks like came from. Whereas over the years, I think people are starting to realise that there are, you know, a, a great diversity both in terms of the people that lived in Australia, live in Australia, um, Indigenous people, their, their cultures, the way that they are sort of interconnected, but the way that they have their own, you know, um, stories, their own practices, their own um, cultural material. And I think what's really beautiful is that at the moment, not only are we noticing that, recognising that diversity, but we're also recognising that the women's work in that, for example, fibre work has suddenly become something that we are really recognising as, as, a, as a strong art form. And I think you only have to, for example, go to the National Gallery of Victoria and have a look at their wonderful exhibition that's on at the moment called Who's Afraid of Colour, open just before Christmas and is on, I think, until the end of April, mm-hmm. which again is, is an exhibition celebrating the diversity of women's work across Australia and has a great emphasis on that fibre work which I think for a long time we didn't, we didn't recognise as sort of as, as fine art. We sort of saw it as cultural practice, you know, material culture, but not necessarily as fine art. So not only are we recognising, yes, that there's um, more than just what we would traditionally, what we originally re- maybe recognised as, as Indigenous art, but also, you know, that there is both in the way it looks and the materiality of it and then, you know, the contemporary stories. I mean... All of these artists have very, very different histories depending on where they are from mm-hmm. and those histories, you know, make up this wonderful fabric and this wonderful narrative for this country in terms of the different stories that are, that are being told and the different ways they're being told, you know. Um, I mean, the fact that Marie tells her story through very traditional materials and then through things like lenticular prints, through holograms, holograms you know. The, way, yeah, the ways to tell these stories are kind mm-hmm. of are, are definitely shifting. It's really exciting yeah. to see. 
And it sounds like they're um, the not only are they shifting, but that notion of um, continuing to push the envelope and to, to yeah. challenge yourself and your own practice. Absolutely, I think you have to challenge yourself as an artist. And you know, I, I love making jewellery. That's how I started making jewellery, painting. You know, very fine, detailed work with you know two, three hairs on a brush, and to go from that to painting a tram. Um, that, you know, had to almost do a bit of bodybuilding holding that brush. <laughs> um, but, and then to go from that to, to where I am today, you know, making these 50-metre river reed necklaces based on traditional necklaces um, that were given to people passing through country, through Bunurong country, as a sign of friendship and, you know, safe passage. Um, and then the, the lenticular prints, the hologram all these different things and I'm just wanting to, to do more and more and just push the boundaries. And even within those traditional materials, I think Marie is known to push, for example, the river reed. Mm. Why make a two-metre-long, you know, practical-sized river reed, Marie, <laughs> when you can make a 60-metre-long river it reed? It needs to be the wow factor <laughs> where people um, will take notice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, the, and, and Marie um, also, I think, uh, another exhibition, speaking about, as we were before, mm. you know, that sort of southeastern Australian Indigenous um, art forms, but... The, the show Sovereignty that's on at the moment that Marie mm. is actually featured in as well with some of those river reed necklaces but does give you again the sense that uh, uh, of the mm. real commitment to their art but that diversity and that difference yeah. of the artists in a show like that too. If you want to get along to the women's show it's on at the Vivian Anderson Gallery which is located on the ground floor of 284 to 290 St Kilda Road, St Kilda. More information at Vivian, that's V-I-V-I-E-N, VivianAndersonGallery.com. The Women's Show is an annual exhibition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women artists uh, and... uh, as we said, it was time to coincide with uh, International Women's Day, which was yesterday. I've been talking with the gallery manager from Vivian Anderson Gallery, Amy Boyd, and artist Marie Clark. Thank you both very much for joining us no here worries. at Triple R. Thank, Thank you. you. Judy Davis is uh, an actor and director who has won awards, been acclaimed, uh, and is currently directing the production Faith Healer, which is being presented by Melbourne Theatre Company. Previously uh, had a a great season at Belvoir in Sydney. Judy, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks. So I guess let's begin just by talking about the play uh, specifically. It's a series of four monologues. telling what different versions of the same story it's uh, and presenting a, a a fairly complex character at its core yes there are three characters um all itinerant wandering through wales and scotland <clears throat> with the center being a faith healer um and the play is uh in some respects a bit of a whodunit there's an event that they all talk about and the the um, the incidents of that event are gradually revealed. Facts are disputed. And so that the play throws up this interesting challenge for an audience to firstly try and sort of put the jigsaw together and then determine who's telling the truth. It took us... It's taken us a long time to work that out ourselves and that's rereading the play obviously and studying it so it's it's a quite a challenge the audience has to listen <laughs> which i think is one of the valuable things that theater can do in uh, in our everyday lives watching epic television dramas for example or 
watching cinema at home, people are easily distracted by their phone, for example. So, so every 10 minutes they're looking at something else. Being in the theatre, that communal experience of switching your phone off and sitting in the dark with strangers helps us focus in a way that other media can't. Well, you know, it is rather compelling, a large black space with all the light at one end, the theatre. Um, it's, it can be powerful. It's not always, of course, but it can be. But the play's also about shared lives and the ravages that that can create and the grief and the remorse and the humour too because there's some very funny sections in it. It's a beautiful play but he's a wonderful writer, was a wonderful writer. Yeah, the writer is uh, Brian Friel. Now, not everybody has loved the play. I read a review in The Spectator which described it as libelous blarney um, uh, and was really quite saying that it's presenting an island, uh, a charlatan from Limerick who peddles his brand of magic to deathbed cripples in Ireland, Wales and Scotland and says that the play in some ways plays up Irish stereotypes that the English enjoy, that they can laugh at the people on the other side of the Irish Sea. And, uh, but yeah. uh, obviously that's not everybody's <coughs> reading of the play. Talk who, to us. Who reads The Spectator? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah uh, I don't think it's... If, no, there are no stereotypes. Teddy, who's a sort of English manager, Cockney manager, I think when he first comes onto the stage, the audience might well think, whoa, we're being hit with this massive, perhaps, um, you know, politically incorrect um, (laughs) vision of a Cockney. But, of course, Teddy is... uh, um, Changes. He the more he goes on, he, that gets stripped away because that's his defence mechanism. And then you find out really the heart of the man by the end of his monologue, and it's it's very touching, I think. <clears throat> but no, no, I, don't, I think that's unfair. But um, but the the plays generally considered Brian Friel's masterpiece. And it's a difficult play. I would not say that it's an easy play to understand from our perspective <clears throat> or maybe from the audiences, except that it's such a wonderful ride and it's so visceral that a bit like Shakespeare, you don't... You know, you might come away from Lear and not be... Oh, there are elements of the play you're not entirely... You haven't entirely grasped, but then you think about it and you maybe even go back and see it again. Um, And this play is definitely worth that. It's certainly, I think, in part about identity, loss of identity, which is an Irish issue for Friel, and he wrote about it a number of times. Um, And he was quoted as saying that that, for him, was one of the central difficulties of being Irish having a country that had been invaded by the English uh, and had its language stripped off it by the English people playing tin whistles being strung up from trees in the Cromwell days um, and so and then and then Christianity being laid over this ancient kind of heathen country with all its power and wonderful, intricate beliefs, all of that stripped away, but not entirely, because I think Friel is saying that undercurrent is still there in the Irish and it still empowers them, And despite all the you know, suffocating elements of 
Christianity. And he writes about that in his play Dancing at Lunasa, which some of your redesigned listeners, I'm sure, would have seen. The wonderful moment where the woman suddenly throws flower over her face and it's streaked with white and she lets out this unearthly screech and then they go into this wild dance. It's, you know, riveting, riveting theatre. And Faith Healer has moments like that. The, the writer is probing those areas in this play too. Now, you are directing this production uh, for uh, the Belvoir production, which the MTC are presenting, but you're best known as as an actor for stage and screen, both uh, film and TV, as well as theatre. But I wanted to ask you, uh, your directorial debut was Barrymore uh, with Barry Otto in 1999. Is it true that Barry Otto essentially as he has said, basically bullied you into directing it. He did, he did. He kind of almost grabbed my hair and dragged me around the room. I, and I didn't want to, because it was a one-man show, and I think, in retrospect, Barry might regret that he bullied me into it, because we had a rather bizarre set, and on the first day of rehearsal, horrifyingly, it was there in the room. And so the error of the error of judgment was um, was apparent from the start. And I, like about a week in, I thought, oh, no, I know what the set should have been now. It should have just been a platform, really simple platform, with two steps going up and on the other side two steps going down. Nice and cheap. And <laughs> I didn't have the courage to go to the STC and say, look, thank you very much for this set, but actually we don't want it anymore. <laughs> we just want to... So we were stuck with it. <laughs> not having courage is not necessarily something, a trait that I associate with you. I know I'm like a little rabbit, really. I've got to really kind of uh, myself up. <laughs> so in terms of directing now, uh, even uh, I found a quote from you from 1999 oh God. Uh, where you said, uh, I wouldn't say I have an enormous appetite for either acting or directing. I like it, I find it challenging and sometimes sort of inspirational, but I've never been the sort of actress who has a list of roles that I'd killed to play. I found it interesting that at that time you were saying you didn't have an enormous appetite for acting or directing. Is that still the case? I don't, I don't even know who I said this to. Kerry Maybe... O'Brien. It was an interview oh, with Kerry O'Brien. On 7.30. Oh, there was a camera in my face. You know, you, I blurt out all kinds of things. <laughs> well, I mean, I've never been massively ambitious. I mean, I always went into acting with a degree of ambivalence. And um, I thought, oh, this could be really dangerous. It could you know, end up making me highly self-conscious, which um, after doing yoga for some time, I thought was the absolute killer in life, self-consciousness. I still do think that. Um, so it worried me. It worried me. But, um, but then I thought, oh, I probably have to just explore it a bit. So I went to, across to Nida because I grew up in Perth. Well, anything to get out of Perth. <laughs> so I went across to Nida. And it was difficult and it has been difficult and it has made me self-conscious. All that was sort of true. Um, but as I've got older... One of the nice things about getting older is you start to not actually... Care as much? Yeah, you think, ah, oh, what the... You can swear it's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't seem to matter as much anymore. And and, and you... Life... You, you, my attitude to life, anyway, has in a sense become simpler. The struggle to... to, to uncover what, what I truly believe about things has become increasingly important 
you know, so anyway, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, so acting, you know, I'm not into celebrity and all that stuff. I think that's very dangerous as well. I do, what I do love about it is uh, the, in a sense, the community service aspect of it. And let me explain it. To be able to just reveal something, to, to lay yourself bare for an audience and for a writer and hopefully you're doing it for a great writer, is a wonderful privilege. And I do think that audiences, I think it means something to a community that I think it is important. There's certainly that, again, to come back to that idea of people sitting in the dark together, that collective communal experience is mm. something that um, that s- s- other art forms can't really give us. There is a thrill about sitting in a room full of strangers responding emotionally to what we're seeing on stage that I don't get. <laughs> From, from most other art forms, even a great film perhaps, there's something about the live experience of watching something unfold that's never the same two nights running. For yeah, example. and it's also witnessing the courage of the actor because it, it is a courageous act to get up in front of however many people and uh, expose yourself and I, th- and I think that's exciting in itself and there is a sense of the, the tightrope performer that can fall and I and, and, and I not meaning to be negative about audiences, but I do think there is an element of, is he going to get there? Is he going to fall? That's exciting. Well, it's like a, you know, that's why we used to love circuses, I suppose. Um, uh, yeah, and, and I, that audiences are interesting. They often become, by the end of a play, like like The One Beast, which is a curious thing. Maybe not so much at the Sumner, because it's a... You know, the, the auditorium goes back so far and I think the people at the front really have a quite different experience to the people at the back. And that's a really tricky thing. Mm. And I don't know how you play that. Yeah. Mm. Um, you talked about actors exposing themselves. What role have you felt most exposed in in your life? Oh, every role. <laughs> um, uh, oh, God, I can't answer that. I just did Head a Hopper. I was pretty bloody exposed in that with these ridiculous hats on <laughs> and everybody laughing at me as soon as I got on the set <laughs> as if they were my hats and, of course, they weren't. <laughs> um, I played Garland. That was very exposing. But the um, the director of that, Bob Ackerman, was just so wonderful that, you know, he was always there as a support, which is not always the case. Sometimes you, Sometimes the directors are not a support. And then you're then you're really on your own. You're on your own with the material and the audience, hoping that there's some comfort there. What have you learned from the directors you've worked with over the years that is, has now informed your own directorial style? Uh, well, I've learnt what not to do. You know, don't don't be unkind to an actor. Don't don't humiliate an actor because it's a very difficult and delicate job that they do. Um, I think it's important for a director to get a team together, the designers, the actors, who can all work well together and create a a nice nice feeling for the company so that there's a sense of um, support and a kind of a love, and I think that's really important. And it's uncommon, to be honest with you. Um, I learnt from Mr Ackerman from the Garland thing, uh, just to let actors go a bit. I, th- I have to learn that more. <laughs> <laughs> but he's a wonderful director, 
in that way. Yeah. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Judy Davis, who is directing the current MTC production, Faith Healer, which opens tonight at the South Bank Theatre. Uh, and she is also uh, an actor uh, who has been... She's look, BAFTA-winning, Oscar-nominated, uh, Emmy Awards, all those kind of things. Do awards matter? I think the Oscar matters. Uh, or I'm not even sure. It's become such an odd thing now, the Oscars, but I don't think... I mean, look... I don't mean to knock it. It's it's always a privilege and exciting, you know, if they fling these things at you. But it, it's not, it, I don't think I've ever got a job from any of them. And at the end of the day, that's the thing that matters. You know, you got to get you got to get that part. You know. <laughs> what do you look for in a job? <clears throat> well, it- I I personally I, I like to be challenged by it. I like the character that they're asking me to do, to have opportunities to push push the envelope. Um, I just love a beautiful script that in the end is saying something worth listening to. Uh, good director, nice cast. <laughs> Talk to us about creating a role, and I'm intrigued to know what, uh, if you're playing a fictional character, for example, the the character of Molly in The Dressmaker, versus playing a real person, so, uh, a character based on, on somebody like Garland, for example. How do you, uh, do you approach roles differently when you are thinking about the, the person you're playing, or is it the same approach regardless of whether it's a, a fictional or a non-fictional role? At the end of the day, whatever you play, you have to have made it yourself and made it real. Um, but if you, if if I'm asked to play somebody who existed or exists, worse, <laughs> um, oh, there's a great responsibility. Yeah, you've you've got to um, you've got to represent them as truthfully as you have managed to discover. So with Garland, there was so much material on her. Her daughter was one of the producers. So if I had a question, I'd go to her. Sometimes she could answer, sometimes she couldn't. Um, But so much material literally on her, the camera on her or um, her talking into a recording device because she was going to write an autobiography. They were amazing, the help. Uh, and I felt that she, if she'd been around, she wouldn't have minded me doing it, you know. Um, the same, the same producers of a couple of years later decided they want to make, wanted to make something about the Reagans. Uh, that was um, an error. Um, and I remember I got to Los Angeles and I said to the producer, look, I thought maybe I'd go and, um, go and meet, uh, Mrs. Reagan. Oh my God, don't do that. Oh my God. <laughs> and I thought, oh, we're in trouble here because, I should be able to go and talk to her. But, of course, Nancy Reagan was so controlling, so it probably wouldn't have been a good idea. But So that, so that was very difficult, very difficult to find out anything about her. Um, yeah, so the responsibility is great if you're playing somebody who has actually existed. A fictional character, well, you know, you still want to keep them human. <laughs> I mean, really, there was a lot of my mother in the Molly, so, um, yeah. I wanted to ask about the film industry, and uh, the there's a certainly there seems to be a perception that uh, the film industry is 
a hard place to survive for anyone because you're only as good as your last film often seems to be the approach but it seems especially hard for women the um the the pressure to uh, around appearance and body image for example i'm thinking of the late carrie fisher talking about how much weight she had to lose to to replay the role of princess leia kind of recently she's uh, spoke a, about that a few times but i also think the i'm thinking of the way the star system uh and hollywood in particular seems to protect uh an actor or a director accused of predatory or abusive behavior and such as Casey Affleck um what's it like to be a woman within that industry which seems to almost vi- bully women in some ways while holding up men uh well you know if you're a sensitive soul you wouldn't go into you wouldn't go into it it is tough and it is tougher for women of course it is um and but but it's not restricted to the film industry i mean you walk down any street you know women uh are held to a different uh different account t- than men and of course i mean i always found that difficult because because i was just this kind of weird thing um which i suppose helped me in a way because because i thought well bugger them i'm not going to i'm not going to allow the the world to define me for myself they can think what they like um but it is difficult and it, and it, i don't i can't see it changing in a hurry you know go on instagram and see the the poor desperate pictures that these young girls put up um for all the talk about feminism that that hasn't changed you know how many how many girls blonde their hair for, i i know there may be some blondes listening to this but i did warn my son beware of false blondes because there's a reason they're doing it <laughs> and, and they're killers underneath this is something i've learned no i've alienated half your listeners um that's not going to change uh, well it it would be nice if it did but short of going back to the cave i can't s- or young women becoming so empowered i don't know but the film industry savage what about the savage theater industry women. what about the australian theater industry is that different and how has it changed since 1977 when you graduated from nida well i always thought i would be a theater actress you know given my difficult hair that seemed to change every time the weather did and I thought, well i'm not going to be able to use me in film so i thought theater um <clears throat> and um but nobody offered me a job nobody wanted me nobody wanted me in theater and i think it was that they didn't think i was pretty enough and i thought well this is ridiculous i mean it's theater you can look like anything can't you put on a false nose and the weird thing was that i ended up working in film though i didn't expect that outcome at all so i don't know that much about theater i've only worked in it a couple of times bizarrely when i was uh, 25 or something i was offered a job at the royal court in london which terrified me but anyway i read the play and it was this blonde huh, blonde i thought oh this is a weird play i mean it's a f- great play but it, 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 she sounds a bit like marilyn munro but obviously that wouldn't be right anyway it's a great play and i'd love to go to so i went terrified the first day i'm in there and the director said okay judy so um so i think now we've we've had our talk and now you better go, go off to your week fitting I said, "Oh, uh, week fitting." Well, yeah, well you are playing Marilyn Monroe. And I went, "Oh my Jesus." And that was <laughs> So that was weird. And it was great. 
but not often have I worked in a theatre. Mm. I've even forgotten your question now. That's okay. <laughs> I wanted to ask uh, about uh, criticism and reviews and whether you read them and whether you take them to heart. Um, your husband is Colin Friels, who's, who you're directing in Faith Healer. Last year I did an interview with him um, and he uh, clearly took umbrage to a particular review for Skylight, which he was uh, performing in at the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, and there was a point where I essentially had to cut him off. Um, before <laughs> <laughs> he but became libelous. Yes, essentially. <coughs> but... Um, <laughs> So he obviously reads reviews carefully and and cares about people's responses to his work. Do you read reviews? Are you one of those kind of performers who, in the middle of a run, is is pushing reviews aside, saying, I won't look at them until afterwards? And what's your response to reviews? I read reviews. I read reviews. I shouldn't say that, given that there are going to be reviewers coming tonight. But if you're listening, yes, it's true. I will read what you write. And I may hate you afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, it was mean what he... Because Colin lost one of his lines on opening night in Skylight. And the, re- the critic put it in his review. And that was a bit mean. I mean, it's theatre. It can happen. It's called prompt corner, for God's sake. You know, it's not unheard of. Um, but he had a bit of a go at him. And indeed, that might happen tonight because... One of the actors who's got this long monologue has only been doing it for two and a half weeks because we replaced the actor or the actor who did it in Sydney didn't want to bring it down to Melbourne. So it may well happen tonight. Um, listen, the thing about critics, as long as they know their stuff, I have no problem. I do have a problem, however, when a critic just says, no, I just didn't like it. And you think, oh, you're not a critic. You're like the boy next door. Why should anybody read you? And then you wonder how they got into the position as a critic. But a proper critic like Harry Kippax, when I was young, was the Sydney Morning Herald critic. He was a wonderful critic. He knew everything about theatre. So so I think we have to have critics, but they have to be really good at their job. Judy Davis is directing Faith Hill of the MTC. It opens tonight and runs through until the 8th of April in the South Bank Theatre, uh, 140 South Bank Boulevard, South Bank. You can book at mtc.com.au. Judy, as a final question for you, um, what advice would you have liked to have been given when you were starting out as an actor that you'd never got? Uh, what advice <laughs> would you perhaps have for your younger self or indeed for any young actors who are listening to this conversation right now? What do they need to know about the industry? <laughs> That's a great question. It's also a, a fiendishly difficult question to ask. Hmm. Well, my daughter wants to be an actress, you see. Hmm. I think they need to understand it's a long, long road. It takes a long time to collect your knowledge. Don't, don't feel that it's going to happen in two years or five years. And you've got to be very courageous because it's tough and you've got to keep your eye on your true ambition and not get waylaid into fame or riches. You keep They're not a bad thing, but you've got to keep your eye on the ultimate prize, which is your work, which at sometimes can actually be elevated into art. Mm. Judy Davis, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting. Thanks for your time. <laughs> Thank you. 
My next guest has joined us in the studio, Nicola Gunn. Uh, is presenting her work Peace for Person and Ghetto Blaster as part of Dance Massive. Uh, the season is running from the uh, from the 15th to the 26th of March, I That's do believe. correct. Welcome. Thanks. Nice to have you back. Yeah, it's lovely to be here again. <laughs> now, because I think quite possibly the last time we spoke in here in the studio was about this same production. I think it might have been. Yeah, that was about a year and a half ago now, possibly. 2000 and it was, uh, when was it? October 2015, it premiered at Arts House. So we probably spoke about it then. And since then, it's gone on to have a remarkable life. Yeah, so far it has. It, it went around the country, went on a national tour. So it hit all the capital cities around Australia. And um, I just, I've just come back from New York, uh, where it had its international premiere at Coil Festival, which was quite extraordinary. And now it's back in Melbourne at Dance Massive at Malt House for two weeks. And then <coughs> it'll go on to a, a European and um, sort of couple of cities in the Americas tour. That's pretty rare for a, a show to have such uh, a shelf life. I know it's wild. I don't. I actually don't know if my body will hold out. <laughs> There's got to be a point where it needs to be retired, I suppose. But hopefully, not just yet. No, no. While while it's still paying my rent, I'll keep doing it. <laughs> what do you think it is about the piece that speaks to audiences so strongly that it's had such success? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. It's it's really. Su- surprising to me how I guess I, I, I suppose it has captured um, people's imagination I think it's and I think it really is the combination of text and dance that um, that is it's so risky I mean there's so much about that concept that could fail and and yet I, I think Joe and I found this fine balance and and somehow it works remarkably and of course the content of the work which is all about the ethics of intervention and and um, moral relativism and peace and conflict it it just it's just it's always timely <laughs> and and it was very interesting performing it in New York where of course everyone was talking about Trump and the election and the presidency and and yeah it just felt so relevant. So, one of the things that we should tell people is that this was, I understand, inspired by a real-life incident when you saw, you were overseas and you saw a man throwing stones at a at a nesting duck. Yes. And you decided to intervene. I did. That moment in itself seemed slightly surreal. It was surreal in the moment. Uh, I think it's, it's one of those very bizarre scenarios where you start moving and acting before you can even think and and everything becomes this kind of surreal film and suddenly you're in this um yeah this you this film and and i i mean i was so incensed um by his actions that i i didn't even think and i just um I guess quite aggressively approached him and told him to stop what he was doing and then we had this very short but um, but quite angry confrontation that lasted probably only about ten minutes, but it just it it just affected me so much, and I became so preoccupied by so many facets of that that brief encounter, namely um, namely the fact that I really took a lot of pleasure from the, from the confrontation, and and that I found really fascinating, like troubling and fascinating. Why troubling? Because you were taking pleasure in the act of confrontation? Yeah, I was taking pleasure in it. I was really enjoying giving 
an absolute stranger, a piece of my mind. And I guess, and, and behaving in an asocial manner, you know, it's not commonplace to yell at people in a public space. And, and I, and I just, I don't know. I just really, I just, I just enjoyed it a bit too much. And I, I remember coming back or I remember speaking about it to a lot of friends and um, a lot of people I met because I was so obsessed with this thing that had just happened to me. And I asked people if, if when they get very angry, um, do they ever have like fantasies of really violently hurting someone or inflicting pain on someone or or destruction like keying a car or breaking a window and do you have fantasies like that and if people are like no no Nicola no I, I don't and so I kind of thought oh what is this about me and then of course the thing is I have these fantasies but I don't act on them so it just got me thinking about um, the you know people that do cross that line and and how it's a very a, a, a very grey, blurry line. Well, I'm happy to confess that I do have those kind of violent oh, fantasies occasionally. For example, when somebody <laughs> is stubbornly sitting uh, uh, on a really crowded tram and they're yeah. on the aisle seat and they refuse to move over to the yeah. window, um, it's one of the, or when they're in the doorway of a tram and you're yeah. trying to get just little things like that. <laughs> no, that it's just, really terrible. I mean, I could just be walking down the street and just like want to push someone. Like, it's, I, I don't know. I think. <laughs> Probably couldn't get that checked out, but I don't. I just, I just think there's a, a, there's an attraction to doing something that is um, sort of antisocial a little bit. And given that the body of your practice as a performance maker is autobiographical work, mm. it makes absolute sense to then mm. interrogate this event and these feelings and to put yeah. them on stage. Yeah, and especially because I took such a moral high ground in this in this uh, encounter I had with this stranger. And, of course, I am far from um, a, a wholly moral being myself. You know, I have many flaws. And, um, you know, I do... I make a lot of mistakes. And you explore those mistakes on stage, yeah. which is must be confronting for you in some ways but it is is it also do you do it because it's cathartic or just because it's the thing you know best so therefore it makes sense to interrogate it i think both richard i think both um i mean i also i i remember um someone someone who i'm working with on another project she she pointed out to me that um i reveal so much i confess so much it's often it's, it's quite hard to believe what's true and what's not true and um, and and I found that really interesting. Maybe the, the over the over over confession, but um, I mean, I'm not saying it's all true either. It's it's very embellished. I think my my autobiographical fiction is what I call it. And it's additionally embellished in the instance of Peace of Person and Ghetto Blaster, which, to remind people, is on from the 15th to the 26th of March at the Malt House, um, in that you've embellished it with very, very uh, quite intense physical dance uh, mm. sequences choreographed by our mutual friend Joe Lloyd. Yeah, the brilliant Joe Lloyd, yeah. Uh, and and that, was always, that was always part of the concept of the work from the, from the get-go. It needed to be a fully choreographed work because it's all about, I suppose, unnecessary action if I were to think of violence as an unnecessary action. And so I, I sort of... Uh, I, I wanted to make a work that was just um, full of frivolous movement that almost has no meaning but I think the way we've constructed it it's very nuanced and it, it, it is sometimes absurd and sometimes it can be quite affecting 
uh, depending on how it sits with the text. And and they don't sit together. They're kind of a sliding over each other constantly. So it's, it's a bit of a juggling act for me. It's like, I think it's... It, I think it's... Um, yeah, it's the most complicated work I've ever had to perform. How much has it changed over time since it premiered? Uh, it's It has changed a little bit. I think the text, I, I continue to rewrite. I'm, I'm doing more rewrites before this season. Um, and the choreography settles more, I think, as I become more... Because com- obviously I'm not a trained dancer. I'm, I'm this, you know, I just... I'm a, I'm a dancer in my heart. <laughs> but... but um, I, I I don't have the technical skill to be called a dancer. Um, I I think that the the movement is is getting more settled. I'm getting I have I just continually just get more confident with with the movement and that, um, playing with that kind of level of care don't care. Try to make it a subconscious movement as opposed to something that I'm deeply concentrating on. I've. Uh, another confession i've not yet seen peace for person and ghetto blaster despite its melbourne seasons and tours and so forth so i'm bloody (laughs) delighted that it's uh having a return season at the malthouse as part of dance massive because i will finally get to see it yeah it's so wonderful to get a chance to represent a work in melbourne because i think at arts house which you know i adore you have such short seasons maybe um five days six performances over five days which is excellent it just means a lot of people miss it um, and, and so, you know, there are opportunities to remount a work. It just rarely happens. I'm really glad that it's coming back. As I said, uh, Nicola Gunn's Peace for Person and Ghetto Blaster is on from the 15th to the 26th of March in the Beckett Theatre at the Malthouse as part of Dance Massive. Uh, it is wheelchair accessible uh, and you can find out booking details at dancemassive.com.au. Tickets range from $30 to $45. So uh, if you And if you book a bunch of shows, I believe there is a, uh, a discount. Uh, I think so too. Hmm. So go and see a tell you more about that go and see a lot of dance massive shows support some uh, local choreographers and performance makers and Mm. challenge yourself as well by seeing something perhaps outside your comfort zone and then over a drink afterwards debate with friends about whether you would interrupt somebody throwing rocks at a duck nicola gunn thank you for coming in oh thanks so much richard this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au